Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the X Show. I am your host, as always, Tony Shu, here with my co-host Donna Shu. Hi. Would you like to deliver your disclaimer? Yes. So I'm Donna Shu, licensed marriage and family therapist associate with my private practice in Plano, Texas, called Serenity Counseling. I want to give a quick disclaimer, as usual, that what is discussed here is for entertainment purposes and does not constitute mental health advice. That being said, let's get into our topic today. We've got someone special in today. We have someone from your own, uh, what do you call it, alma mater? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it is. Yes. Today we have with us uh, Dr. Stephen Furlick. Uh, he's here to talk about, well, he's written a book called Sex Talk. And it's exploring the, and he, he can definitely get into this a lot better detail than I can, <laughs> but it's exploring the communication differences between genders based upon uh, biological characteristics from our chromosomes and how that kind of influences our ability to communicate across genders. So here we have it, Dr. Stephen Furlish. Can you introduce yourself today? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I'm uh, Stephen Furlich, and I teach communication courses and research also at Texas A&M, uh, their campus in Commerce, Texas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So sorry that Tony has been butchering your name. <laughs> Furlich. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Furlich. My apologies. Furlich. Got Furlich. Mm -hmm. All right. Yes, and so it's not Stephen. It's actually uh, has has a pretty distinguished career. He's he's been teaching communication studies in one form or another in the university level for the past couple decades. And um, if, would you care to give us a brief overview of your book for the listeners? Yes, and that's a good place to start. Also, is I've been teaching a variety of communication courses, but. I've taught a gender communication course for the last eight or nine years. And one of the things that I started out doing was um, using research and books within the discipline of communication studies itself when I first started to teach the class. And one of the things, there was two things that stood out to me. One was I kept seeing some of the same themes that emerged over and over consistently that there are some communication differences between biological males, biological females. But then secondly, in at least our discipline, communication studies and maybe uh, linguistics and other areas related to it, it was usually explained away as this is social learning. Um, any different, there's not much differences between the way that males and females communicate and whatever differences there are can be explained through uh, social learning, the way that you grew up in uh, family, um, school, society, or whatever else. There's a book in 1990 by uh, Deborah Tannen, and she pretty much uh, takes that line. And then all the researchers after that pretty much um, took on that same paradigm that there's not much communication differences between males and females, and whatever there is can be explained through the social influences. But... One of the things that I started to uh, inquisit about is why is it that you have different generations, people from different cultural backgrounds, um, you have uh, different uh, life experiences, but these same things keep occurring. So then I started looking for some other explanations and other disciplines, such as in uh, biology, uh, psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, 
and there are rather consistent and reliable explanations for these gender communication differences between males and females based upon brain structure and sex uh, hormone uh, differences as well. And even some of the gender communication research that has come out in uh, the last several years, some of that has been discredited as well. Right. I think this is really, I mean, when it comes down to it, there's, there's this age-old debate that's been happening for over 100 years at this point of that nature versus nurture. And uh, yeah. from what you're telling me, it's it seems like the recent sociological research is really going towards that nurture standpoint. But you're kind of, I, in, a, in a sense, you're making an argument for that it's more of a balanced, nuanced approach because, and I, and I, and I do think there's some real basis for this. That biology does affect who you, does affect uh, how you think. I mean, we take a look at a a classic example, which is um, dogs and cats. You know, dogs are domesticated and trained by people and they've been, and through that, they've been basically natured into a certain series of behaviors. They're much more, um, you know, they're, they're accepting of the owners. They, they, they have particular behaviors that, uh, well, wolves out in the wild and their ancestors didn't really have. Whereas compare that to cats, which um, were much less, how should I say, directly domesticated by humans and and more and more almost almost like they domesticated themselves because they they recognized the mutual benefit of living with humans. And um, yeah. you can see the you can see the differences in behavior with that. So. From that standpoint, it seems stands to reason that there must that some biological influence on how you are and on who you are and how you think um, would be would would be there would be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Why? Why can't it be both? Why can't it be nature and nurture? Mm-hmm. That's always what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And just to give some background about what really get me rolling in that particular direction is that at conception, everyone pretty much starts off on the same path of development that we usually think of as female. Mm -hmm. And then after about four months after conception, that's when the sex hormones start to differentiate. Um, Those with the Y chromosome start to increase their male uh, sex hormones, the androgens, what we usually think of as uh, testosterone. And that's what actually creates brain structural differences between males and females. And these structural differences are um, so distinct that now science can analyze a human brain and with over 90% accuracy predict if it's male or female without knowing what the biological sex is. Hmm. And that's fast. So if there's that much of a difference that you could predict if it's male or female, then all communication starts in the brain. That's where communication originates, and there's that many differences. Then I don't think it's that much uh, far of a leap to think that there are biological influences that influence the way that we communicate differently as well. Right. I think when we think about you know difference between sexes, I think that now that and it can be get so simplified because there's obvious there's obvious physical differences, but the sex chromosome really does have it really does as you're saying. Um, have a have a much broader scope of changes changes than I think perhaps is is commonly understood to be by the general population. And your book is book is almost um. I mean, you have this is a very well researched book. You have over seven hundred references. 
um, in it. And okay. the fact that I think your references actually take up a little further the actual book length itself, so to speak. And, uh, and this is in, in some, in some ways, almost like a summarization of all those different kinds of studies that has been performed on this. And while you're definitely approaching, you know, some, some more novel conclusions, it's a, it's a summarization of those studies that can be, well, understood by a layman is not a specialist in these areas. Thank you. Hmm. I was curious what your thoughts were on the, it's an old book from the eighties, old book. I'm sorry. It's, it's a book from the eighties. Uh, and it's something that was therapeutic at the time. It was used all the time. And it's the, uh, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. So, I'm curious because that was also gender based. I mean, it, it's in the title, uh -huh. but I'm curious if you've ever had a chance to read that and what your thoughts were about it and how it relates to your research. Yes, I read that years ago and I think there are some advantages and disadvantages to it. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is an advantage of it is it sort of at that time, um, got things started rolling in that particular direction that people I think can personally identify with and relate to some of those topics of uh, gender communication differences between males and females. But uh, some of the disadvantages of it was off the top of my head, I don't really remember it being that research-based. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't remember a lot of research articles being cited in it. Mm -hmm. And then also I don't remember as much precision. That's one of the things I tried to do in my book, have specific uh, predictability and specific, uh, details as opposed to more broad types of generalizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. a little bit, and I think that's what helps sell books with that one in particular. Um, I thought it was a little bit hyperbolic that, um, trying to use the metaphor that men and women are from two different planets right. almost assumes for two different species, whereas with my particular uh, book, I kind of see us on a continuum, and it's uh, we're sort of within, you know, a particular range of each other, but males are a little bit better in some things, female, overall, generally speaking. Females are a little bit better in other things, overall, generally speaking. And it's not necessarily two exclusive different categories. One does something and one does not. It's just one does something a little bit better and the other one does other things a little bit better. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I, I felt from reading it, too. It's hard to generalize everybody. Not everybody fits into the cookie cutter mm -hmm. role. Right. And I think and I think that is a good point that you make um, with with gen when you when you keep using the word genuinely, because these are statistical, there are statistical variances there's always an exception to, um, there's, well, almost always an exception to a variety of different characteristics. Like someone will be better at this thing that, that men are generally better at and vice versa. But overall, we can make statements about that particular demographic as a whole and have it, and have it be genuinely accurate. And I, that's a good segue into something I really noticed that you paid a lot of attention to in your book, which is, that difficulty, it seems like you say, you're saying that there's a lot of difficulty when it comes to the research that you can do on, in your, in your field of, in your field in sociological, uh, in sociological disciplines. Could you elaborate on that? 
Uh, yes. So it, it seems like in our particular discipline itself, um, it's just uh, easier and more convenient and less expensive just to go with the paradigm of social learning, pass out some surveys, do some questionnaires, do some interviews, but the objectivity doesn't go as far and the precision doesn't go as far as the studies that I went over in my book where I take in other disciplines of the biology, the neuroscience. I do like fMRI scans and see where the brain activation differences actually are and some of the brain structural differences as well. But then also I really like um, are the studies that track the correlations and uh, the differences in terms of the role of sex hormones and how different levels of sex hormones influence emotions, perceptions, communication, spatial ability, all those things as well. So I think by ignoring uh, these scientific types of approaches, you're limited on what you can understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think, I think, and this is just my opinion here, that there are, in, in a, in a sense, those experiments that can be done biologically in, in different kinds of disciplines are, well, much easier to do. I mean, we have, we have so many examples of, frankly, terrible, well, terrible from an ethical level, maybe not from a scientific level, though certainly some of them were of, sociological experience being done on being done on actual people with mm-hmm. weighing up the weighing up those benefits of the human cost of it yes. as well from the well scientific reward and um is that is that something that you that you encounter when you're looking at the when you that in, you encounter in your research I think a lot of it, at least in our discipline and then other related disciplines as well, so communication, gender studies, English, history, things like that, um, a lot of it is that it's been going in a particular direction, the social learning direction, and when you do that type of research, you tend to get rewarded for it, and that's pretty much what the um, accepted uh, paradigm is. So there's not much interest and not much uh, attempt in terms of trying to do something that's different that goes outside of that because um, it's just not what is being taught and it's not what is being rewarded. And there's, I'll just throw this out here as well, I think there's somewhat of an agenda set in, in mind as well where you want to see something and it's much easier to find what you're looking for um, the more open to interpretation it is. Right, a, more of a general academic bias in, in that sense because those yeah. results are up to, well, a, more, a lot more interpretation. I mean, um, I, I yeah. studied economics uh, in university. Okay. And, you know, one of the problems that I noticed with a lot of economic studies was simply the possibility of simply researching some things just because of the nature of it. We couldn't exactly, economists couldn't exactly justify to a large scale society doing something like crashing the economy of its, of a village to see how it, Ah. see how it recovers, right? That's the classic example. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's difficult because it affects other people, you know, but I think, do you think that, um, 
something else that you mentioned you in your book was doing a lot of animal research. Do you think that stuff is necessarily always applicable to humans? I try to limit that in my book uh, quite a bit where I just have very few that I could even remember off the top of my head that were animal studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of them were with humans themselves. So, degree separation oh. from oh. the original source itself, the farther oh. you get away from trying oh. to understand humans by not uh, uh, research or understanding humans. So, oh. Oh, Steven, um, very uh, little, if any, do I have of animal research, and I think there needs to be some caution with that. Right. Uh, Stephen, could you repeat that for me, please? Uh, for some reason, your voice just cut out for about 20 seconds there. Okay. So one of the things with animal research itself, I try to limit that inside my book itself, where I have very little of any animal research. Most of it's with humans. Because I think that the farther you are removed from an original source, the less accurate it is. So if you want to understand humans and you're studying animals, you could get some insight from it, but not as accurately as you can with humans. And with the advancement of technology today, um, I think there's not as much of a need to study animals and understand humans when you could actually study humans themselves in a less intrusive way than it was years in the past. So just doing an fMRI or taking someone's blood and studying their sex hormone levels, um, you could get a lot of insight uh, from humans themselves and not really um, pose that much of a danger to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. If you don't need comparative uh, studies anymore, then why continue them? That makes total sense to yeah. me. I was curious about the differences that you found and talk about in your book. Which, w- If you could highlight a few of them, which ones would you... Um, say mm-hmm. kind of stood out to you about the genders. Okay. So one of the things that I, I would like to start out with is that for the longest time in terms of uh, play behaviors and interest and abilities, um, it's been noted in research that there are some differences between boys and girls early on. But again, it was always explained as social learning, the way they're brought up, school, family, whatever else, culture. But one of the things that really stood out to me with that is that there's a strong association, strong correlation between sex hormones and play behaviors, that the higher levels of testosterone that a child has, the more likely they are to engage in what we think of male typical types of uh, play behavior, such as playing with a truck, more active, more physical, playing with a train, playing with a ball. And um, what they found was that this isn't only with boys, but um, with girls as well, that there is a condition that uh, 1 in 10,000 girls are born with, and the acronym is CAH, and they have higher levels of androgens, which are those male typical sex hormones that we think of maybe as like a testosterone. And those girls that are born with these higher levels of sex hormones that are male typical, they tend to uh, participate in play behavior more similar to boys than what the average girl does. And they tend to have uh, better spatial ability um, than what the average girl does. So moving in that type of direction as well, because boys from early on, they're better at tracking objects and uh, spatial ability and directions. And a lot of that is associated with testosterone. And they even uh, tend to go into similar types of careers that uh, males do as well, much more so than what the average girl does. So if you take out 
um, the gender itself and just look at the sex hormone, you could trace it to the same outcomes. And probably these boys and girls are being raised differently, but uh, they're acting very similar the more that they have uh, similar sex hormone levels. Hmm. Hmm, that seems, yeah, that makes, that's, that's, that's a very interesting thing to have researched. I'm curious, you know, with the, you know, with the, um, use of HRT that, that, uh, is becoming a little more commonplace nowadays. Has, and you have you noticed any particular studies that talk about that can use that as a, um, use as a basis? Cause that strikes me as, a kind of naturally occurring situation. Um, well, maybe not naturally occurring situation, but a, a situation that occurs in society that isn't an, necessarily an experimental endeavor in which one could really uh-huh. research the impact of suddenly increasing or decreasing your home, the hormones and the, the hormones in your body. Yes. Um, some of the things that we found naturally in the book through research tend to be pretty consistent when you artificially do it as well. So whenever sex hormone levels change, they tend to change the brain synapses as well, such as uh, different reactions, emotions, behaviors, um, this, that, and the other. Uh, what has been found is that artificially increasing uh, testosterone levels, such as maybe a female transition to a male, where you artificially increase those testosterone levels, uh, to a large degree, it actually decreases gray matter in the Broca's area of the brain, which is responsible for language ability. And that's what has been found naturally as well is that testosterone actually hinders language ability. So when you uh, artificially do it, the same results are found, and one of the explanations is that it decreases the gray matter in that particular area of the brain. What's also been found is artificially decreasing testosterone levels is consistent with what's already been found as well, that that hinders spatial ability. That testosterone helps spatial ability, and then when you artificially lower it, it hinders spatial ability. And a lot of this research has been found with males uh, who have maybe like prostate cancer, and they have to artificially decrease their testosterone levels. Well, their spatial ability decreases as well. Mm-hmm. There's um, one of the things that I think uh, should be at least noted or aware of is that testosterone is used um, to treat uh, depression for both males and females. And one of the things uh, that's used for is that it's often converted into serotonin, which helps balance people's moods and emotions and things like that. So if testosterone helps these positive uh, psychological outcomes, emotional, this, that, and the other. Um, what happens if you artificially decrease it in someone? What are some of those outcomes? And then maybe vice versa as well, that if you artificially increase testosterone to high levels, what's been found naturally is that testosterone is related to aggression. So if you pump someone up with high levels artificially of testosterone, what's that going to do to their aggression as well? You know, you've seen that artificially with athletes for decades. If they take some sort of testosterone, some sort of um, steroid, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's like a steroid rage that goes on. So is that a risk as well? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, with, like with anything involving mental health treatments, as I've learned from my uh, darling therapist wife, <laughs> there are a variety of, 
there are a variety of pros and cons that have to be met that have to be measured out. That's why you have to be well uh analyzed analyzed by a professional. But that's it's very interesting that this is such a replicable that this is something that can be so readily replicated um with simply with well controlling the levels of hormones. And so that seems and so that's seems like much harder evidence and and I suppose in the, and I suppose this is what you're getting at here which is that um you have much harder evidence to support hard evidence to support these biological differences that then influence the communication differences between genders and this is well i mean the the essence of what it is that you're talking about which is this often ignored um perspective uh, towards that in pursuit of that always nurture now you mentioned something about uh an, an academic bias in the mm-hmm. literature why do you think that is mm-hmm. i think uh part of it is that uh it's agenda driven that they a lot of researchers they've been taught it and that's what they want to see and reinforces what they want um is that there's not much differences between males and females and whatever there are can be explained through society uh to maybe uh look at to try and uh maybe uh dilute uh some of the differences there actually are um just because people are just, that's what they want to see I think a lot of times are rewarded for it and that's what the majority of the research out there is mhm Right, right. It's, it's the confirmation bias. I'm going to look for something that's, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I, what I believe in. Uh, I'm curious, what other findings have you found? Um, any, dif- any other differences that are notable? Uh, yeah. So one of the things that has been, um, identified in our communication research for decades is that female females are superior with nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. So they're much better at empathizing with other people, uh, understanding their emotional state, uh, understanding other people's nonverbal behaviors, and also females are better and more accurate with um, communicating their own nonverbal behaviors as well. And there's some biological explanations for it, such as during social interactions, Females tend to have higher levels of oxytocin, which is that bonding chemical. Mm-hmm. So as oxytocin increases, you feel that connection to the other person. If you feel that connection with the other person, you're more likely to empathize with them, understand them, understand their emotional state. They even have more mirror neurons, females do, that activate during social interactions. And what those mirror neurons do is you see someone else's nonverbal behaviors, and then your brain activates those mirror neurons and prepares your body to display those same nonverbal behaviors. Mm-hmm. So if your body's prepared to display those same uh, type of nonverbal behaviors, then you're going to have a similar type of emotional experience and understand what the other person is going through as well. And one of the things that really stuck out to me in terms of explaining the nonverbal uh, uh, understanding the differences between males and females is, and as far as I'm concerned, this, this uh, finding is pretty much um, scientifically proven that females have a more integrated brain with their connections. So they have many more connections across both hemispheres and then males have more connections within each hemisphere. So what that helps is for her, the female during social interactions, 
is to engage in the conversation while also analyzing the other person's nonverbal behaviors at the same time. Whereas with males, we could do one or the other, but ask us to do both at the same time. We're not as well equipped for those reasons, lower levels of oxytocin, uh, not as many mirror neurons activated, and having the connections within each hemisphere doing one task, compartmentalize, as opposed to doing trying to do two at the same time. So the bottom line with that is that females are going to have a superior nonverbal perception and understanding. And um, what we need to understand is that she is going to read into it and have a deeper, deeper level of understanding of a social interaction, whereas he's going to have much more of a literal understanding because when he communicates, uh, language is on the left side of the brain that's activated. And then emotion is activated on the right side where she has much more of her overall brain that's activated. So she's going to have a deeper understanding and he's going to have uh, more of a literal understanding and not nearly as deep. Mm -hmm. What role, if any, do you think this plays into a person's personality? Well, I think that... uh, Having a deeper understanding non-verbally, then you're going to be able to empathize with other people better and understand the emotional state much better as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So, from what I, from my experience with different uh, with different kinds of cultures around the world, I mean, this is something that I think a lot of cultures really kind of intuitively understand, and that's written mm-hmm. in there that these are these are the way that men are and these are the way that women are. I'm curious, is this something that you've been able to find replicated? within the kind of like those cultural observations around the world? Yes. So a lot of uh, what I come across and my conclusion from this is, is that a lot of these themes are consistent regardless of different cultures. It's just that culture may influence to some degree how it's displayed. So how it's emotionally displayed, um, maybe a little bit in terms of your nonverbal behaviors, uh, maybe a little bit of the words that you use as well. All those, all those things can play a slight, um, variant, um, to some degree based upon culture itself. But yet the same themes are still there in place. And I haven't seen anything that has shown that it can actually be flipped, that males are much better at the language ability or that males are much better at nonverbal communication or empathy, but all those I keep, I, I keep seeing as females, and these are some of the biological reasons why, and same thing on the other end as well. I haven't seen anything overall that females are better with spatial ability or compartmentalization or other things that we usually uh, think typically of what male abilities are. So if it's an outlier and you see those um, aspects in like a, a, a female or the inverse, if you see it in mm-hmm. a male, what hormone, is it hormones that's going to influence that or what would create an outlier? I would say probably it's a combination of a number of things and sex hormones would probably be part of it just because there's such a strong correlation where estrogen helps language ability, um, social understanding. And such as, for example, um, estrogen helps hearing ability, so how well you hear things. And as women enter into menopause and their estrogen drops, their hearing ability drops as well. So if um, adult females tend to have 20 times as much estrogen as what adult males do, um, you can see how there's a strong 
uh, correlation between estrogen levels and social ability as in testosterone and spatial ability, things like that. So I think that would be one factor. And then maybe there'd be, uh, something, personal experiences, things like that. So one of the things I try to get at is just, uh, pieces of the puzzle. And these are just, you know, a few of the uh, different pieces that are rather reliable that has been found consistently study after study, uh, year after year, decade after decade. Mm-hmm. 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 So, one thing that you did, uh, I want to touch upon with you was, um, you mentioned that sex hormones are kind of part of the, part of the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. Yeah. Would you, um, so in that, in that case, would you say there's, there's certain, um, effects cause, effects and changes caused by the genes that would be, well, es- essentially almost impossible to reverse without impossible to reverse stuff that's kind of set in, just simply by being born mm-hmm. male or female, and well, you can't really change that. Generally, overall, I think for the most part, um, females are always going to be superior with uh, social understanding and language ability. And this has been found early on that boys are diagnosed uh, with language disorders, speech disorders early on. From grade four, as early as that is, girls outperform boys with the way they read, the way they write. Um, with word associations, males tend to have more visual connections, females more auditory. Um, females have a larger, more active hippocampus, which helps with uh, memory, but also with language ability and relationships as well. So one of the things with language differences, um, and one of the things that's been found in our research and communication for years and decades is that there are differences in language, um, the way that language is used between males and females, that males tend to use more report talk where they are more on the topic itself and less so on uh, tying in past memories and emotion, whereas with females are much better at uh, doing the rapport talk where they do the topic at hand, but then the past memory tie in the relationship and also the emotion as well. And part of that is explained through having higher levels of estrogen for her. That helps have a more overall brain activation where you can activate those different areas of past memories, language, and emotion all at the same time, where again, males are much more compartmentalized with their connections. And there's even more blood flow to uh, the areas of the brain for emotion, uh, where you create the words, where you connect the words, memories, sensory, connect- uh, sensory connections, contextual cues, um, and things like that. So one of the things that needs to be understood with that is she's very equipped at tying together uh, past memories, the topic at hand, and emotion. And he needs to understand that that makes sense to her, tying all those things together. And she's not off topic and not um, uh, trying to bring up things that are unrelated. And she needs to understand when he's engaged in conversation and only gives the topic and not much in terms of emotion, that he's not emotionally removed or doesn't care about the topic at hand. It's just uh, males are just not as well equipped to tie all those things together. Right. I think this is useful. These are useful lessons of, well, information to know, um, in regards to, you know, that gender communication, which is all really comes to, which it, which is, uh, what the main focus of it 
comes down to is that mm-hmm. so people communicate simply differently based on their sexes. Do that sense, um, how should I put it? With the, you know, with the modern cultural overview of how people look at gender with this kind of, with this very nurture focused, focused way that everything's, you know, sociologically imposed upon mm-hmm. out and everything's kind of like a concept. How do you think, how do you feel like this kind of information is going to get this, this, um, how do you feel like this biological basis? is going to be received among the uh, general general population. You know, there's a growing movement of mm-hmm. you know, both the, uh, the trans both transgender as well as gender fluidity uh-huh. out there that really challenge and in essence what you're saying with this book is that there you can you can change gender. You know, gender is you know, the difference between sex and gender is between sex being biological and gender being that uh, sociological aspect. But uh-huh. It seems to me like you're saying that there's a certain amount of gender fluidity, so to speak. Uh, I think in your book you say it's about 80% biological, 20% sociological. Yeah. And, but you're never really going to be able to truly exp- someone who's gender fluid and goes from say male to female and female to male isn't ever going to, isn't ever going to truly experience that, um, truly experience the other side, so to speak. What, what would you say about that? I agree with, I agree with that. There are some things that you just can't change. I mean, you can only change things so far. I mean, you can't change at the cellular level, male to female. Um, you can't change, uh, different types of body frames, such as, uh, shoulder to hip ratio. You can't change that. There's, uh, it's been out there this, uh, fine in for a while that there is, on your hand itself, the 2D, 4D ratio, where the index finger um, and your ring finger, the proportion between those, if your index finger, the one that you point with, is longer, then that means you are exposed to much higher levels of estrogen um, early on in development. And if your ring finger is longer, then you were exposed to higher levels of testosterone during your development. And then you have all these predictabilities of sex, sex hormone differences prior to birth can actually predict play behavior, uh, career choices, and all these other types of uh, preferences and abilities as well. So one of the things that I think is interesting is that when you see these major uh, differences in sex hormones um, between males and females, you usually see that high increase in different, uh, differentiation during the preteen and teenage years. And what's that do? During the preteen and teenage years is when boys and girls are starting to decide what career paths they want to go into as well. So when you have these sex hormones that differentiate between males and females, the testosterone and the estrogen during those years start to increase the differences. That's when they start to think about what careers they want to go into, what things are they good at, and that's where you see a lot of differences in careers. Some are more male-dominated and some are more female-dominated, and it's not necessarily that society is pushing uh, one gender or one sex in one direction versus the other. It's just this is what's naturally occurring at that time that they make those decisions and what they enjoy doing and what they're skillful at. Mm-hmm. And I, I, 
I think that does play a role in history. The only thing that I've noticed, at least in my field, is that uh-huh. initially it was more male dominated. I don't know if this is more cultural or not, but I mean, with Freud and everyone that came before and Jung, everyone tended to be more male other than like there was, um, his daughter, I think she also did something. Um, I can't remember exactly what she focused on, but I remember it had to do with archetypes as well. It, it goes way back. Um, but well, I it, think, I, I think it is important to keep in mind that, um, you know, we're not saying anything is black and white here per se. There's, there is a mix of both those biological influences as well as those sociological influences that can definitely impact it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just, I'm wondering what you think happened there because it was very male dominated and over time it has been extremely female dominated. I hardly see male therapists. I see, I see them. I do see them, but it is an overwhelming female dominated field. And I saw that when I was going to university at A&M, I was in psychology and I'm taking my psychology classes. They are mainly women. I did not go in thinking, oh, I just want to surround myself by women. I went in there thinking I want to study psychology. This is what's interesting to me. And there was the occasional men in there, but it was more female dominated. So I'm curious what you think kind of happened there. I think a lot of that was um, social navigation ability that changed over time for women where they have more freedom to choose their own choice and know this is an option and freedom, which maybe they didn't think of it as even an option back then. Whereas now there's much more freedom to choose whatever career path you want. And it seems like psychology is much more of a natural type of path for women themselves where they are much um, superior with social understanding, uh, relationships, uh, language ability, nonverbal understanding, all those things. So I think that that psychology is probably much more so of a natural path for females than it is with males, given that uh, the biological types of uh, underpinnings with higher levels of estrogen, uh, social understanding, this, that, and the other. Whereas with back then probably there's more societal types of roadblocks in there, but now that they have more freedom to choose, this is their natural choice. Mm, I, I think, see. I think there's some credence to that. You know, um, feminism was third wave and second wave and first wave feminism aren't that far behind us, unfortunately. These, these are more modern, con- more modern concepts in some sense. And, you know, with women being freed from you know, always being a st- always being at home and being able to uh, go out and go out into the workforce, do have have a lot more mm-hmm. occupational freedom than they were before. You know, once you got rid of those so- so- social barriers, it's it's um, if I understand what you're saying, the biological biological advantages and predispositions came into play, and that's why your field right, is uh, so well dominated by women like you. Mm -hmm. I was curious if knowing this, so knowing the biological differences and the way that hormones affect you, your personality as men and women, if that can be challenged, because I'm sure as you that you might have encountered, you know, in in writing this and in talking to people where people are going to challenge this. And I'm curious, 
can it be challenged or is it uh is it a battle that will never be won like is it trying and then realizing oh no i'm never gonna get good at math or or being close to being an engineer because i'm female you know what i mean that's that's what i'm asking uh-huh. i think taking a uh, look at it from more of what the consistent themes over and over and then what are those conclusions uh, over and over just as inside from uh, um, uh, excuse me steven but then not necessarily just looking for outliers you know there's always going to be outliers for various reasons but the consistency over and over, I think, gives a lot of credence to it. And the precision. I mean, when you look at correlations, and you can even take out um, gender or biological sex and just look at the correlations of sex hormones themselves and what they're related to, I think that gives a lot of strength to it. So um, looking for the majority of the time this applies most of the time, I think it's what gives a lot of uh, credibility to it. Mm-hmm. So looking, you know, since you are challenging this, this modern narrative that we have now of, of everything being sociological, why do you think that there, let me, how should I put it? What do you think is the kind of cause behind all this confusion and, um, almost of confusion and challenging of all these, of, of uh, gender, you know, with gender fluidity and transgender, um, becoming much more prevalent now than it was before. What do you think is the cause of that? I think a lot of times it's um, not necessarily as objectively based, so therefore it's open to interpretation, and people may see what they want to see as opposed to what's the objective type of research behind it. So that's probably part of it. And then whoever the gatekeepers are, I mean, the gatekeepers a lot of times are in academia. Uh, they're editors of journals. So they decide what gets accepted and what doesn't as research, which gets presented in classes, which gets um, presented to the next generation of professors and researchers themselves. So I think a lot of times it just sort of uh, built upon itself through who holds the key to knowledge itself a lot of times in academia. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they allow the dissemination of the information that's going to be given, yeah. and that is what people receive. Yeah. yeah. So if all you hear is one perspective, one theme, then that's what reality is to you. So one of the things that has been identified in research rather consistently for years and even decades is that women, females are diagnosed at a much higher rate for depression than what males are. And for years, it's been explained in classes, um, that is because females, women are much more likely to see a therapist, therefore they're much more likely to be uh, diagnosed with depression than what males are. But that doesn't explain 100% the reason. There are biological explanations as well, such as the serotonin system, Serotonin helps to regulate emotions, mood, happiness, fight off depression, uh, helps with sleep, memory, all those positive types of effects. The serotonin system has been identified for over 40 years as sexually dimorphic. So males and females, you can actually identify a difference in their serotonin system, whereas females, they synthesize 
uh, serotonin much slower. They have much lower serotonin activity. And it's even been found in a few studies that females have lower serotonin levels in their brain. And also that uh, testosterone is often converted into uh, serotonin itself. And with males, adult males having at least 20, around 20 to 25 times as much testosterone as what females do, is that helps to convert into serotonin and that helps uh, fight off depression and regulate moods. Uh, you can see why there are some biological explanations to that as well. And it's even been traced to the X chromosome depression and anxiety. So with females having two X chromosomes, you can see how that could lead to more uh, susceptibility to depression, anxiety as well, as well. So the serotonin system, how much is available to them, and then also uh, testosterone differences in uh, X chromosome as well all contribute uh, some explanations as to why females tend to be diagnosed with depression much more so. All right. Well, we're running soon on time here. Uh, we just have one last question for you here. Um, it's more of a, it was a question slash comment. So in my field, um, I see the behavioral effects of what you're saying. Uh, so basically what I've noticed and the trigger warning for anybody who doesn't want to hear this. Um, but this is what I see when it comes to the differences between male and female, um, choices of suicide. This is the method. Mm -hmm. The method varies greatly. And um, I find it interesting because it aligns what I see on a behavioral level aligns with what you've seen on the the biological um, hormone Mm -hmm. level. And um, I hadn't actually been able to find something like that that could explain it. I can just see it the behavioral Mm -hmm. side of it and take note of that. And there's there's. Um, it's in the literature, at least in my field, that that is what happens. Males tend to, the method that they tend to pick is something that is more fatal. And the one for females tends to not be as fatal. It is obviously with the intention of ending Uh their lives, but it is not with, you know, sometimes it is not with as much accuracy or it's done with pills and it's across the board. I don't see an, yeah. a lot of variation. I think part of that may be that um, males and females' social behaviors just are different. Um, females, you know, a bit more of the emotional type of thing, where us males, we tend to communicate much more through our actions itself, perhaps. Uh, maybe that's part of it. Um Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That was just my observation like, as you were uh, talking. F- females tend to have, you know, much more of emotional depression set than the other, whereas males tend to have much more substance abuse a lot of times. So mm-hmm. they're doing these physical types of things um with substance abuse. So the way that maybe the um they attempt suicide is along that line of physical types of things that they keep doing as well. Whereas I could see uh, medication, overdose on medications and the other, uh, maybe much more so of an emotional traumatic event tied to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes that makes sense. Well, thank you so much for hopping on with us, Doctor Furlish. 
<laughs> oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks for your questions. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and for showing us what, you know, what your studies have been. And, um, it's pretty evident in your book and the amount of, uh, sources that you list and the amount of space that it takes in your book that this is something that was not, uh, quickly written. It was something you dedicated so much of your time and your life to. And, uh, we really appreciate you coming onto our show and sharing with us what your findings were. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much once again. This has been the X show, uh, with my wonderful wife, Donna Shu. If you want to reach out to her, you can reach, you can find her on the website, serenitycounselingbcs.com. And this has been Dr. Stephen Furlish with his book, Sex Talk. And I am once again, Tony Shu. You, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach out to us on our Facebook page, or you can email me at tony at shoecapital.co. Thank you for taking the time and to tune in us towards this, this evening. Do you have any last words, Dr. Stephen Village? Uh, yes. My email address, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, is just S-T-E-P-H-E-N, period, F-U-R-L-I-C-H. Um, at T-A-M-U-C dot E-D-U. I always like hearing from readers what they think about it. And the book itself is pretty easy to get on Amazon. Just type in my last name in the books category, category F-U-R-L-I-C-H. Yes, you can find him on Amazon with his book. And if you, uh, and if you ever want, of course, I will forward you any comments and uh, any communications I get about you and your book. Well, thank you once again for tuning in uh -huh. today, and we'll catch you next time, listeners.